when a person is first learning to swim with the front crawl or a freestyle stroke, kind of the standard swimming stroke, there are some mistakes that almost come natural. One is the tendency to want to keep your head up. You, you want to keep your head above the water, but if you're going to swim well, you've got to learn to plant your face into the water and you turn to the side when you're finishing up a stroke and you catch a breath of air and, and then you, you continue swimming. Not only does the tendency to, to want to keep your head above water seem natural, but it almost seems second nature when you're learning to swim to want to kick and bend your legs at the knees. It seems like the best way to propel yourself forward is to, to kick at the knees. But if you want to swim well and you want to have the right form, your legs have got to be completely straight with movement at the hips and not at the knees. So when we're first learning to swim, there are aspects of swimming that feel so right and yet are so wrong. They feel so right and yet they're so wrong. And this morning, we're going to think about this same idea in terms of our spiritual lives. Are our natural inclinations right when it comes to spiritual matters? More specifically, how are you made right with God? And are there some ways in which spiritually things can seem so right and yet be so wrong? This morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, as we think about these questions together. Remember that the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to the church at Philippi to encourage them in the faith. Let's look at Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, this text teaches that you are made right with God only, only through faith in Christ. You are made right with God only through faith in Christ. How do we hold fast to this truth that we're made right with God only through faith in Christ? Well, let's look in verses 1 through 6 together as we think about that question. In verse 1, Paul begins this section of his letter with a reminder to rejoice. Now, if you remember, 
Throughout this book, Paul has already talked about the importance of joy in the Christian life. This is an ongoing theme in the book of Philippians, that that we would be a people of joy. We see there in verse 1 that Paul has already addressed the matters that he's going to bring up. He's, He's going to bring up some issues that he's already talked about before with the Philippians, but notice Paul's eager to do so. And he says, it's important that I bring them up because I want to safeguard you. I want to protect you. What's Paul trying to protect the Philippians from? He's trying to protect the Philippians from false teachers, from those who would pervert the gospel. Now, sometimes people say, well, you don't really need to defend the gospel because the gospel is powerful and the gospel can defend itself. And yet that idea runs counter to the New Testament. All throughout the New Testament, you see an emphasis in the writings of Paul, but not just of Paul, of other New Testament writers as well, of the importance of holding fast to the gospel and taking a stand against false teachers. This is a recurring theme, and, and Paul says, you know what, I've already talked to you about this, but this is so critical. I'm eager to talk to you about it again. Look at how he begins verse 2. It's almost startling the way that he begins in verse 2. Watch out! I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that you say to someone when a, when a baseball's flying right toward them and they don't realize it. Watch out! You better move because you're in danger. You see, Paul is concerned that the Philippians are about to be slammed by false teaching. He says, watch out for the dogs. Now, remember in Jewish culture, dogs are not the same as they are in our culture. You know, a dog in our culture is a member of the family. In Jewish culture, dogs were looked at as filthy and and unwanted. And so Paul says, watch out for these dogs, these, these false teachers. Paul is warning the Philippians about a particular type of false teacher that that the early church had to deal with. They were called Judaizers. And what Judaizers wanted is they wanted Gentiles not only to trust in Christ, but to follow the Jewish religious customs. So so they were expected to do both. That's what the Judaizers wanted the Jews to do. Now, it's a bit ironic that Paul is calling these Judaizers, these people who were so committed to Jewish teaching that they wanted to require it as a part of believing in Jesus... He's calling those Jews dogs. He's making a powerful point here. He's rejecting their teaching completely and fully. He also calls them evil workers. Now listen, they're they're doing church work. How can Paul call people who are doing church work evil workers? I mean, the things that they're doing are religious in nature. They're encouraging people to follow God just in their own way. How could Paul say anything bad about that? And yet Paul does. He says they're evil workers. Why? Because they're turning people away from the one true gospel. They're, they're, they're doing the devil's work. And he says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, here Paul's talking about circumcision because, because the Judaizers wanted all of the Gentiles to be circumcised if they wanted to be faithful to God. They, they required it, and Paul says, you know what? They're focused on this physical procedure of the flesh, and they're ignoring the reality of the heart and the reality of the gospel. And he says they're mutilators of the flesh. They're not calling people to faithfulness to God. They're requiring something of people that God doesn't require. To require circumcision was, a clear, was in clearly in opposition to the gospel because the gospel is a message about heart change. Or to put it in another way, the gospel is about having a heart that has been circumcised. Paul will talk more about this in just a moment. In verse 3, 
And Paul says to the Philippians, we are the circumcision. He includes himself, and he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's talking to those who are members of the church at Philippi. Now, why would Paul say to these Gentiles who were uncircumcised, we, me? Yes, he was a Jew, and of course he would have been circumcised. And to these Gentiles who wouldn't, we are the circumcision. Why? Because they had the gospel in common. They had the gospel in common. Their hearts had been circumcised, if you will. In other words, they had turned to faith in Christ. Their hearts had been changed by the Lord Jesus. Now, in Genesis 17, God puts circumcision in place with Abraham and, and all of his descendants. It was to be a physical reminder to the Israelites that they were God's special people, that they belonged to him. It was to separate them from the surrounding nations. But even in the Old Testament, God didn't want just external actions. God wanted the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 4.4 says this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. You see, it was entirely possible for the Israelites to be physically circumcised, but to have a heart that was completely opposed to God. Completely opposed to God. Now, Moses... When he was writing, remember God used Moses to write the law. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 and he was looking ahead to the time of Christ, to the time of the new covenant. And he said this, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants. And you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. You see, with the coming of Christ, the law is fulfilled and observing all of the ceremonial and Jewish religious customs that was, that was required in the Old Testament is no longer required. The Judaizers were saying to these Gentile believers, no, all of these things are required. You must do this. And if you don't do this, you're not right with God. Now in verse 3, Paul gives three characteristics of those who are truly of the circumcision. In other words, of those who have truly tasted Christ and know Him. First, they're the ones who worship by the Spirit. They worship by the Spirit. Now, if you'll remember, the first church was in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the church would have been filled with Jews. So the first church was, was a Jewish church. And these issues had already come up in the church. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, we see that the Holy Spirit was given to Gentile believers. And in the church, they said, wait a minute. God is giving the Holy Spirit to Gentile believers, to, to those who are uncircumcised. And that became proof that God was including the Gentiles in his covenant people. Paul says, second, we are the ones who boast in Christ. In other words, we brag not about ourselves, but we brag about how great Jesus is. We're the ones who boast about him because of what he's accomplished. We don't boast about our own abilities and he says, third, we're the ones who have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we recognize that we can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We've got no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul often used the term flesh to refer to human weakness, to human sinfulness. And so Paul says, we cannot. Be saved by our own strength. We are far too weak. We are far too sinful. 
In verses four through six, Paul gives his own Jewish resume, and it's an impressive resume. He says, compare my Jewish credentials to anyone else's. My credentials can stand. He said, I was born an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee who strictly, blamelessly obeyed all of the Old Testament laws. I could could check off every mark. I did it all. Not only that, I persecuted this, this, this cancer on Judaism, Christianity. I stood against that. Paul had lived as perfect a life as one could live when it comes to the law. And yet Paul recognized that he could never save himself on his own works. He had no confidence in the flesh. You cannot earn God's favor by your good behavior. So how do we hold fast to the truth that we're saved only through faith in Christ? Well, according to verses 1 through 6, you reject any additions to the gospel. You reject any additions to the gospel. You see, the Judaizers were trying to add Jewish religious observance to the gospel, and it wouldn't work. You can't change the gospel. Now, do you remember when you were younger, maybe in in high school, um, maybe you knew a guy, hopefully you weren't this guy, who bragged about having two girlfriends. He had one in the school that you guys went to, and then he had met a girl at a track meet or something from another town. And, and he, he also had her as a girlfriend. And every now and then on the weekends, he would go over there and, and hang out with her, hang out with his hometown girl. And he would brag to the guys, I've got two girls. Well, that wouldn't work so well now in an age of, of social media probably. But even without social media, the truth would eventually come out. And what would happen? One or both probably of the girls would tell him, get lost. Wasn't going to work. Having, trying to have two women, it never ends well. Never ends well. Well, the gospel, it's like that. But to an even greater degree, you see, we believe in Jesus and we believe in him alone, exclusively. We can't add anything to the gospel. Any more than we can have a good relationship with with two women. That's ridiculous. You, You can't do it. When it comes to the Lord Jesus, you must trust him And trust him alone. No one else. Nothing else. No additions to the gospel. So so what does this look like in, in our lives? Well, this scripture pushes us to answer the question, how are we made right with God? How are we made right with God? All of us must wrestle with that question. And if your answer is this, believe in Jesus and then try really hard. Just do the best you can and hopefully you'll be saved. Friend, you've missed it. You're adding to the gospel. Or if your answer is, well, you believe in Jesus and then you get baptized and then you've got to go to church regularly and then you're saved. Friend, that's not the gospel. You're distorting the gospel. If your answer is Jesus plus anything else, then you're perverting the gospel reality that we're saved by faith alone in Christ. That's all. So what is your answer to the question, how is person made right with God. What's your answer to that question? You need to answer that question. Every one of us must answer that question. How is a person made right with God? Next, the only way to be made right with God, we need to say it plainly again, is through faith in Christ. It's through faith in Christ. Now, the words matter here because the words, we must have faith in Christ, can can be redefined. In fact, 
many times the cults do this. The, the cults will take the name Jesus and they'll hollow the meaning of that word out and they'll put their own meaning into that word but, and they'll use the word Jesus and we'll hear them talking. They're talking about Jesus and it sounds perfect to us. But let me give you an example. When you think about Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses don't say that Jesus is the eternal son of God who, who has lived forever. You know what Jehovah's Witnesses say about Jesus? They say that Jesus was the first creation of God. That he was Michael the archangel who who later came as Jesus. Do you see that's a different Jesus? It's a different gospel. We must be careful. The words have meaning. And we must be faithful to what the meaning of the biblical text says. to To the Jesus that's presented in the pages of the New Testament. That's the Jesus that saves. Some other Jesus can't save. But it's so easy to be deceived. It's so easy to say, well, it's about Jesus, so it's good. But friend, it must be the Jesus that you see in the scriptures. This is the one who saves. There's no other who can save. Whatever you call him, there's no other who can save. Also notice that we must have faith in Jesus. What what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Well, we know that it doesn't mean merely to to acknowledge that he exists, to have knowledge of him. It it means more than that. We know that because in James 2.19, James said that even the demons believe in God and shudder. So so the kind of faith that saves is a kind of faith that works itself out in life. So if if I really know Jesus, it begins to shape how I live. It's not that I live a certain way so that I can be saved. That's ridiculous. That's adding something to the gospel. But it's, it's... A faith that begins to change and shape my life. That's the kind of faith that saves. So the urgent question at hand is this. Have you you placed your faith in Christ? Have you been saved and made right with God? How else do we hold fast to this truth that we're saved through faith in Christ? Well, let's look at verses 7 and following to answer this question. In verse 7, all that Paul had treasured, his status, his achievements as a Jew, all of that, he says, I consider it a loss. And he says, what I formerly considered low, Jesus. I thought he was terrible. Now I recognize he's the greatest of all. Now in verse 8, Paul uses these, these terms that were used in accounting and business. This idea of losses and gains. Paul says that he counts everything as a loss. He puts everything in his life in the loss category if it's compared to the gain of knowing Christ. Do you see the passion that Paul has to know Jesus and to love him and to walk with him? In fact, he goes on to say, I consider everything rubbish, dung, waste in comparison to the greatness of knowing Jesus. Folks, this should jar us a little bit. This should wake us up. It should take blinders off our eyes because so many times we have a tendency to make other things so valuable to us. But friends, nothing, nothing, nothing compares to the value of knowing Him, being close to Him and loving Him. That's that's what we see here in Paul. In verse 9, Paul speaks of being found in Christ. 
And he says, I want to have the righteousness of Christ. Now, what Paul is envisioning is standing before the Lord on that final day when God will judge him. Paul says, I don't want to be standing there holding my own righteousness up to a God who is blazingly pure because my own righteousness will never, ever work. Paul says instead, what I want to do on that final day is stand before God, not on the basis of my own effort, but I will stand before him on the basis of the one who was sinless and perfect. My righteousness comes from Christ. And this is what happens positionally. When we turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ, God credits the righteousness of Christ to us. And if you are in Christ, if you truly put your faith in Christ, God looks down at you and he doesn't see all your sin and your blunders. In terms of of how you relate to him, he looks down and he says, you know what? He's covered with the righteousness of my son. She's covered with the righteousness of my son, Jesus. She's perfect. She's sinless. He's perfect. He's sinless. Now, Paul wanted to stand before the Lord knowing that Christ had covered him and that his righteousness was only through Christ. And you see, Jesus took our place on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon himself. And when we call out to Jesus in faith and we say to Jesus, forgive me of my sins, I want to know you and follow you. The Bible says that God wipes our sins away and he gives us credit for the righteousness of his son. And that is something, friends, once we have, we can never lose. And if we know him, we'll want to change. We won't want to live a sinful, filthy life when we know him. Our hearts begin to be unhappy with that. Our hearts begin to say, this is not who I am. I can't be that anymore. No, I've been saved by the grace of God. I want to live my whole life for him and for his glory. And that's what we see in Paul, this eagerness to know Jesus and to love him, to walk with him. In verse 10, Paul says that he wants to know the Lord. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. Think about that. Paul says, I want God's power to work in me. I want God's power to work through me. But not only that. Paul says that he wants to know Christ even in the fellowship of suffering. Even in the fellowship of suffering. Paul says to know Christ often means suffering. After all, God brought about his greatest work through suffering. What brought about the resurrection? Well, the resurrection that accomplished redemption would have never happened were it not for the suffering of the cross. So friend, if we know him and we face suffering and hardship and difficulty and inevitably we will, some of the most difficult and heartbreaking things that we have to face, if we know him, God will redeem that. God will work in that. He'll work through that. He took the darkest day in human history, the cross, and he brought life, eternal life, to countless people. Friend, he'll work through your suffering too. Lean into him. Find rest in him. That's what Paul did. Paul had faced all kinds of horrors and challenges and difficulties. Oh, the Lord will work through your suffering 
It's through our suffering that God does the greatest work in our hearts and in our lives. So you hold fast and in your suffering say to him, God, I don't understand you. But one thing I do is I want to know you. So use this, God, to draw me deep into your heart that I might know you more, that I might love you more. Now in verse 11, Paul looks forward to that day of great redemption. He's looked at suffering, but now he's looking forward to what's ahead. And one of the ways to endure suffering is by looking forward. It's by remembering that this is not the end of the story, that heaven awaits us. So Paul looks forward to the resurrection of the dead. Now in verse 11, if Paul seems a little unsure about whether or not he's going to experience the resurrection, it's not because he had doubts. He knew that he knew the Lord and he knew that one day he would be resurrected for, for, for wonder and of life and, and, and the new heavens, the new earth. But if it, if it seems that he's a bit tentative, it's because Paul would never let his guard down. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul was focused on finishing the race with faithfulness. So if we, we see some tentativeness, it's not that he's not confident that the Lord would raise him up. It's that he wants to press on until his final breath. He wants to be faithful until the very end. So how do we hold fast to the truth that we are made right with God only through faith in Christ? Well, we saw first that we reject any additions to the gospel. But from verses 7 through 11, we see that to hold fast to this truth, you must reject any replacement of the gospel. Reject any replacement of the gospel. You see, a lot of people try to replace the gospel with their good works, and it will never work. It will never work. Let's suppose you, you've got a truck and your truck breaks down and you decide you're going to try to fix it. You want to save a little money and so you go online and you start reading and it sounds like, as best you can tell, the fuel pumps out. So you decide, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna try to do this. You go on YouTube and you watch some videos. Well, this is, see, see how somebody else has done it. You go to the parts store to buy a new fuel pump. You, you tell uh, the fellow behind the counter, I need a fuel pump. For a 2010 Chevy Silverado, 5.3 liters. He says, well, you know what? We, we don't carry that. We, we don't have that. But lucky you, we do have a fuel pump for a 2018 Ford Focus. And what do you do? Do you buy it and try it? I doubt it. You probably find your way to another store. Because you recognize that you can't replace a 2010 Chevy Silverado 5.3 liter fuel pump with just any random fuel pump. It'll never work. And friends, you cannot replace the gospel with anything else. You can't replace it. The gospel is irreplaceable. If you try, friend, to come up with a replacement for the gospel, the scriptures are clear, you won't be saved. You won't be made right with God. So how do we respond? What changes should we make in our own lives? Well, first, reject moralism. Reject moralism. Moralism turns the Bible merely into commands to be followed. And in other words, the Bible says do this, and you say, well, I'm going to do that. The Bible says don't do that. I'm not going to do that. A lot of us see Christianity like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. We, we can't turn the Bible into moralism. 
Why? Because the moment you drop the ball, you're in all kinds of trouble. You see, we can never live up to that standard. Our hearts are too dark. God is too holy. And this kind of moralism ultimately leads to despair. Another version of moralism provides false hope. And this version, as long as you do more good than bad, it's all good. Boys are going to be boys. God understands. Come on in. Everything's fine. You didn't kill anybody, did you? Okay, you're good. High five. Listen, that version of moralism doesn't take sin seriously. It doesn't take the holiness of God seriously. You see, sin, all sin, your sin, my sin, it is ugly before a God who is blazingly pure. A God who can't ignore or overlook our sin. You see, you can't replace the gospel with your own attempts to be moral or to be a good person. You can't do that. The moment you try to replace the gospel with this or with that, you've distorted the gospel. You've twisted the gospel. And a twisted gospel is not a gospel that saves. Now, in our culture, to say that Jesus is the only way, that he can't be replaced, is viewed as intolerant. It's viewed as narrow-minded. Can't we replace Jesus by being a good person with our good works? Can't people get to God on their own terms as long as they're sincere? You know, he's a sincere Buddhist or she's a sincere Muslim. Or he's a very moral person, rejects Jesus, rejects God, but he's moral. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus can't be replaced by being a moral person. Or, or pardon me, that, that, that the gospel can't be replaced by you being a moral person. The gospel can't be replaced by some other philosophy or belief. Now, if you think Paul is just a little too narrow, that's Paul. But I want to look at what Jesus has to say because Jesus is loving and nice and Paul is mean sometimes. Well, then let's look at what Jesus has to say in John 14, 6. What does Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. You see, there's no peace with God outside of the gospel. There's no peace with God outside of faith in Christ. If a sincere and moral life could save, then surely Paul's life before he came to Christ could have saved. He lived a blameless life according to the rules. The bottom line, faith in Christ cannot be replaced. As we reflect on this verse, we also need to say this. If you know Jesus, these verses ought to challenge you to love Jesus more than anything. Paul had been saved by Christ, but he wasn't satisfied with knowing Jesus from a distance. He wanted to know him face to face. He wanted to love him and treasure him and grow more intimate with him. Do you? If you're a believer, do you? Do you long to know Jesus more? Do you long to to dive into the depths of who he is? being intimate with him and close to him. Friend, if you don't, this morning, won't you ask God to to change your heart, to give you a desire to know him more, to love him more? These verses make it clear that we must reject any replacement of the gospel. Let's suppose that you're driving in downtown San Antonio. It's Friday, or, or you're with friends driving, pardon me, in downtown San Antonio. One of your friends is driving It's a Friday night, 8 o'clock. Busy, busy, busy. Traffic everywhere. You're at a light, and a friend 
takes a wrong turn down a one way. And you know, this street's one way and that one's not. It's really confusing. Your friend takes this wrong turn down a one way and suddenly you see just this whole slew of headlights coming towards you. You better do something in a hurry. Your, your friend better make a turn in a hurry. Because if you don't, you're going to be in all kinds of trouble. Now, some of you are right here spiritually. You're trying to go your own way down a one-way path. You're trying to to say, you know what, I'm going to blaze my own trail. I'm going to go at it the way I want to go at it. But friend, you can do that for a while, but you cannot do it ultimately. You cannot do it ultimately. You see, that whole slew of cars coming at you, eventually it's going to catch up with you. It will catch up with you spiritually as well. There's only one way into right relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's through faith. It's through faith in his finished work on the cross. You are made right with God only through faith in Christ. So reject any addition to the gospel. Reject any replacement of the gospel. And if you're a believer, say to him this morning, God, give me a hunger to know you more. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, do you know what the Lord is saying to you today? Come and believe. Come and be saved. Find life. Find eternal life. Today, if you want to be saved, you call out to him in faith. You say to him, God, forgive me of my sins. I'm putting my life in your hands. I want to follow you. And the moment that you do that, and you mean it, God grabs you up, and you're in his hands, and he'll never, ever let you go. Have you done that? Have you found true life in him? Have you put your faith in Christ Join me in prayer.